Welcome to Seize the Score. I'm your host, Chaz Weatherby. Today's episode is Strings Theory Part 1 and features an interview with Dan Larson. Dan is the founder of Gamut Strings, a company that makes gut instrument strings. In this conversation, we focus on strings for violin, viola, cello, and bass. Nowadays, the majority of strings that are purchased and played on by performers all around the world are made from synthetic materials and with modern manufacturing techniques. Gamut is one of the only companies that not only still makes strings exclusively from gut, but attempts to make them with the same manufacturing methods that were in use in the 17th and 18th centuries. While gut strings like those made by Gamut are used primarily by performers in the field of period performance practice, they do have their place among modern performers and I've used them myself, as you'll hear. We had a good, in-depth conversation, and I learned a lot. If you enjoy this episode, be on the lookout for Strings Theory Part 2. It will be released in a few weeks and features an interview with Ed Mingo from Pirastro. Pirastro is another well-known string manufacturer, and in that episode, we will cover modern string construction, including both gut strings and synthetic. As you will hear in this episode, Dan is a strong proponent for the use of gut strings, and later in our conversation he talks about the advantages that he perceives gut to have over synthetic materials. So there will be a Strings Theory Part 3, and in that episode I will be putting it to the test, performing and recording different sets of strings, gut and synthetic, on the same instrument, so that you, the listener, can hear for yourself the impact these different materials make on the sound of the instrument. And now let's welcome Dan Larson. I'm here today with Dan Larson, who is a luthier. He's a violin maker, um, who I believe you spe specialize in the construction of uh, mostly of period instruments, if I'm not mistaken. He also helps run and did you found gamut strings um I, that was my thing yeah yeah so so dan also runs a company called gamut which makes the strings that we put on violins and violas cellos um bass and also other types of vials um which i um, i think we'll probably be able to get into a little bit in this conversation so Strings on instruments are a really fascinating topic, at least to someone like me who's a performer. We get used to a certain kind of strings and we play them for a little while and then we hear from a friend or a colleague about some strings that they're using and then we want to try those new strings. And why this matters is that different strings on your instrument really have different characteristics. They sound different to you, they feel different, which is maybe even more important in some respects, they respond differently. And uh, Gamut specializes in the production of, of gut strings, which is how strings for the most part always were made up until the mid 20th century when synthetic materials started being used in replacement of gut. And I left out metal, which has been used a little bit earlier than that. Let's turn this over to you, Dan. First of all, what is your background? How did you get into the construction and, and production of, of strings? 
Um, I, that came from my work with uh, uh, reconstruction of the early form of the violin. Uh, I went to school to study violin making at the London College of Furniture in London many, 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 many years ago. And I uh, became immediately fascinated with uh, the origins of the violin. Where did it come from? What did it look like? Um, I found out that, well, violins were made in this one way. And then at some point we decided to change the way and modernize it. And that, I, that confused me, you know, the, um, the Stradivari and Guarneri were great makers. Amati was a visionary. Why did we have to change what they did wasn't their concept good enough uh well apparently not you know things change the instrument changes playing technique changes and that that whole process was just fascinating to me and i didn't understand it and i wanted to understand it and so i started researching the early violins and that uh just that's where i ended up i just i just love the early form of the violin i find the whole uh, the diversity of what the violin looked like in the 16th, 17th century, I, I find that fascinating and, and I uh, enjoy, enjoy that study. Do you, yeah. do you mind if I, if I just uh, interject for a moment? Um, we're going to get to strings, but you mentioned that the instruments themselves, the construction had changed, and this will be something that many listeners may, might not really be aware of. So can you just briefly go into those changes and how and when they occurred? Um, oh, sure. Absolutely. Uh, well, one of the fascinating things about the violin is that originally the violin as we know it today didn't really exist. When, uh, when Amati designed the violin family, uh, he didn't have an instrument that was 14 inches long that was a standard violin. There was a, there was a treble. There wasn't actually a violin. There was a treble and there was a viola and there was a cello and, and basses and things. So the, the violin as we know it today originally wasn't part of the, the concept of the family of the violin. Um, and then that, that, so that whole, I just find that fascinating. You know, what, what was it that uh, Amati was looking for? Why did he make these things like he made them? Uh, what tone was he looking for? Well, they were playing polyphony, they were playing polyphony. And so they had these voices that they were working with. And, uh, and then you have to think about, oh, okay, well, what is a, what is a treble voice? What is, a, what is an alto voice? What is a tenor voice? And how do all those mingle together? And then how do the strings work on that? And it just it immediately becomes such a complex concept of the, the tone of the violin and, and how that works in the music that it's playing. And I, I just find that fascinating. Uh -huh. So, so you originally studied instrument making and you continue to make instruments um, now, but then this also drew you into the production of strings. So tell us a little bit about how that um, path uh, was one uh, that you went down. Well, it, it came from the, the focus of the early history of the, of the violin um, because we would go to museums and we would meticulously measure the instruments and we would meticulously try and match the wood and match the form and we would just, I mean it was just as, as you know from talking to instrument makers it's uh, it's an, an intense process and then at the, this was the mid-1970s uh, and I was in London and the early music 
movement was just beginning to develop in, into something. There had been early music scene in London for a long time, up to the 1970s, but it was just at that point, latter part of the 60s, beginning of the 70s, that it began to blossom into uh, an actual musical form. Uh, there were musicologists that began to understand how the music should be interpreted. There were musicians that were learning how to play these these things in a more historical fashion. And then there were uh, us instrument makers that were trying to figure out how to make them as they were made once upon a time. So we could uh, recreate a, at least a concept of the original sound and playing qualities of the instrument. Um, and anyway, we would spend months and months doing the research and making the instruments. And then when it came to putting the strings on it, we we just didn't have much choice. There there were no people at that point that were really making strings in the with the historical understanding that we were using to making the instruments. And uh, we would we would use surgical gut, uh, tennis racket gut, all kinds of, of gut, you know, whatever we could find and put on the instruments. And at uh, at one point, I just had to think that one of the problems we're having with making these instruments work in a historical fashion is that we don't have the strings that uh, th they had access to originally. I would read historical uh, commentary on the strings, on how they looked, how they felt, how they worked, and the descriptions of what I was reading did, did, just didn't meet up with what we were experiencing when we put strings on the instruments that we were making. And I thought, uh, well, you know, unless we have good strings, we're never going to be able to make good sounds with these instruments. And at the time, that was one of the criticisms that early music was having, that the, the tone just wasn't uh, up to the standard that the mainstream classical people were playing. You know, they just had a, a tonal quality. It wasn't exactly what we were looking for, but they had a, a, a professional tonal quality that we just could not match because of the poor quality of the strings that we had to work with. So I just I spent years researching strings and figuring out how they work and how they were made originally. And, uh, and I started making strings because I needed them for the instruments that I was making. And the problem is you can't make just a few strings. You've got to buy you know, you can't just buy a little bit of gut. You've got to buy barrels of gut. You can't just buy a little bit of chemical. You've got to buy a 55-gallon drum of chemical. And so before I knew it, I, I had this business that uh, needed to achieve a certain level of success so it could kind of take care of itself because I still need the strings today. You know, I, basically, I have a string-making business because I need strings of a particular quality for my own instruments. Uh-huh. I read on... Uh... I read on your website, actually, that string instruments of various types have been around for really thousands of years. And I, I read that in an Egyptian tome, someone discovered an, a string instrument with gut strings on it that were, in fact, still functional uh, many thousands of years later. So, so gut has been used to create strings for uh, musical instruments for a long time. Um, I also read that this was a little bit regional, that in some parts of the world, if what you had at hand was a particular plant fiber that could be woven into a string, that's what you might have used for your instruments. So can you just go a little bit into that, that, uh, that history of what we know of it and how this led over time, at least in Europe, 
to the adoption of gut as the material of, of choice, I guess. Um, oh, yeah, it, it's uh, it's fascinating. If you go back to the origins, you have to go back, of course, to the Greeks. And uh, in the Greek mythology, uh, there was uh, 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 Mercury, Hermes was the Greek name for Hermes. He was a mischievous god, and, but he was the original instrument maker and string maker. He made uh, a, a lyre out of a tortoise. And he, uh, he found a tortoise and killed the poor thing and used the shell to make the resonant body for the, the instrument. And he used the, the intestines of the tortoise to make the, the strings for it. And then he traded the, the lyre to Apollo for some, uh, for some cattle. And that's how the, the Helios cattle came about with the, uh, the come into the story of the Odyssey. Uh, uh, Odysseus comes across them on a, on an island. So anyway, this whole Greek thing, but but yeah, originally the stringed instruments were made with gut, and uh, according to legend, that goes back to uh, the the Greek the the time of the Greek gods, and and uh, it's been used, you know, since as long as there have been people that made instruments that had strings, they used gut on it. Um, in some areas where, in uh, some of the Polynesian areas, one of the things that's super interesting is that that the the concept of a stringed instrument is kind of universal. It 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 was developed in a lot of different cultures that had no communication with each other. It was just this idea of this resonant body with this with this. Uh, fiber on it of some sort that would make a sound, which is, I, I think is also fascinating that there's this sort of fundamental quality of a stringed instrument that seems to be universal, sort of built into the human uh, understanding of, of how the world works, which I think is interesting. And uh, so, yeah, plant fibers were used, uh, horse hair was used uh, in, in Russia and in some of the northern climates where you know, they didn't have maybe as many animals as they did in the southern part of Europe. They would use horsehair for strings. Um, uh, silk, the Chinese used silk for strings because it was material that they had access to and, and it was an easy thing for them to go. So the, the ingenious quality of the human nature, creative nature, uh, is fascinating because they'll look around and they'll find these materials that are available to them and they'll adapt them to some of those uh, essential things like making music. So we flash forward perhaps to the 16th, 17th century as, uh, as I understand it, vial making um, the Amadi family, which you mentioned and other instrument makers in Europe who were making these various um, sized and pitched stringed instruments. By this time, in, at least in Europe, gut would have been well established as the uh, material of choice for string making. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah. It was uh, sheep gut that they used. Uh, there weren't that many cattle in Europe at that time, and cattle served a, a different function other than a, a food um, as a, a source of food. That, that was much more the, the purview of the sheep at that point. Uh, so there was a lot of sheep gut available. Uh, sheep gut is very easy to process into, into string, so it became a natural material because it was uh, available, it was easy to use, and uh, adapted to that, to that purpose very easily. Mm -hmm. And uh, I want to circle back in a moment to, to have you explain a little bit about the 
intricacies of the actual making of a string. But um, just to touch on something you mentioned earlier, which is that instruments um, continue to change. And, you know, we typically think of the 18th century, the culmination of Amadi, and then Stradivarius and Guarnerius. We often talk about that as the golden age of instrument making, primarily in, in Italy, but of course there were wonderful makers in Germany and, and other parts of Europe. But um, at this time, the construction of strings, gut strings, I'm assuming would have been a fairly, a fairly standard or well-established practice. And because you mentioned that instrument construction and the evolution of instruments changed towards the end of the 18th and into the 19th century. In other words, the fact that the violins we play on, as you mentioned, are not the same as the instruments that were produced uh, earlier. Did the same thing happen to gut strings, in your opinion? Was there a continuing evolution or, or experimentation with the method of making that led gut strings up to the 20th century to have become changed from what they were in the Baroque and early classical time? Um, yes and no. Um, the, the essential quality of the string, I don't think, has changed that much over the years. Uh, but there were certainly different qualities of strings that were available. Um, if you read some of the, uh, some of the reports of strings, like in the, uh, the, the uh, John Dowland book about um, the how to make and deal with and maintain a lute, he wrote a, a little bit about just sort of how to care and feeding of a lute kind of uh, introduction to a book that it, uh, his son wrote. And uh, he talks about different characteristics of different strings that were made in different places. Um, uh, for instance, there's one type of string that we make uh, that was a string that I developed uh, was based on a, the characteristics uh, that were described about a particular kind of string that was made in Lyon in France. Um, it w had this particular quality of, of being flexible but, uh, but durable. And then the, there was another string that was also even more flexible than that that was made in Pistoi in Italy. Uh, so there were there are different characteristics that were attributed to different strings that were made in different places. The strings that were made in in uh, Munich or Marknikuken were very strong, so those were good to use on the upper strings. And there were other strings that were made in Venice that had different qualities. So hmm. they would refer to the strings uh, by uh, the origin, where they came from, uh, because the the waters, the material that was available to them, all of those factors would result in slightly different qualities of strings. Um, most of those strings were probably made with the usual method of just putting gut together and twisting it in one direction. Uh, you could vary the quality of the string and the plane property of the string by how you process that gut and how much twist you put into it. And then, of course, the uh, qualities of the water would come into play because in the, in processing the gut every everything in the process has some effect on the on the outcome on how the string comes out 
Um, and these days we can um, carefully control the, the pH and the different qualities of the water with chemicals. Uh, historically, they didn't have the ability to do that quite as much as we do these days. Um, they certainly had access to soda ash, which they could use to adjust the, the pH of the water, which is very important. But they couldn't really control the mineral content of the water, and that's mm. something that we can control these days, and that's something that has an effect on the, the quality of the stream when it's completed. Um, so uh, basically, from the time that Hermes started making strings, it would just put together a certain number of guts, depending on if you wanted a big string or little string, and you'd twist it together in one direction, and that would be it. Um, I personally believe that there were systems of, of doing multiple twists on, on strings, which is what I developed for a lot of the strings that we make, which make the thick gut strings for the bases for instruments uh, more usable. They make mm -hmm. it more playable and, and they sound better. Um, so I think <clears throat> that uh, really from the beginning of history up until probably in the 1660s, strings were just gut. They were either thin gut or they were thick gut, and you would just use a gut string on whatever instrument it was that you were playing. In the 1660s, we see that there was uh, the concept of metal being introduced into the string. Um, that could have been twisted into the gut, which would make the gut heavier, uh, or it could be wound around the gut uh, to make it heavy. So there was this idea of, well, we've got this metal, we can combine it in the gut and put the two materials together and we can begin to uh, get a different kind of sound on the basses because the, the uh, problem for stringed instruments because of the limitations of the top string, uh, you know, you have the string has to be a certain length, a certain pitch to get the top string to work. Uh, so instruments were made in favor of the limitations on the top string, which means that there's a foreshortening process that has to be done on the lower strings because theoretically, like a piano, you know, the bass string should not only be heavier, but they should be longer. Um, on a violin, you can't, you can't do that. So you have to start changing the qualities of the string and the mass of the string. And, and if you have more than one material, uh, you have a much wider uh, tonal sample that you can get by using different combinations of a thicker wire to thinner gut or thicker gut to thinner wire, and, and you can start to get different sounds out of it. And that happened in the later 1600s in Europe. And then by the time we got into, uh, uh, you know, into the 18th century, there was a, a lot of strings probably that were available to people. Although even to the 20th century, you could buy a, uh, a plain gut violin G string, you know, those were advertised and those were available. So <clears throat> even into the 20th century, there seemed to be some people that just played gut strings because that's, that's, you know, the tonal concept that they had in their mind. And that's what they, that's the sort of tone that they wanted out of their instrument. Well, absolutely. Um, Heifetz in particular, who was the the sort of um, towering figure in the violin world. I'm, but Heifetz used a, a, a unwound gut A string and sometimes an unwound D uh, string as well uh, throughout his entire career, even as alternatives with wound and even with synthetics were starting to become more widely embraced by, by other string players. So yeah, it's, it's continued to this day, in fact, the, that the 
sort of the search, I guess, for the of the, the, the player's search for different kinds of, of tonal characteristics have led some to continue to use gut instead of the other materials we now have. So I wonder if I could just ask you to walk us through now in a little bit more detail the the process of making a gut string. It starts with having access to uh, the intestines of mm -hmm. now is mainly cow intestine that's used or is it still sheep? Um, we make both sheep gut and beef gut strings. Um, we had to start using beef gut because of the expense of sheep gut. Uh, sheep gut used to be a really inexpensive thing. Um, sheep gut, when it comes out of the animal, it, it uh, gets divided into different grades, basically depending on the diameter of the, of the intestine. If you can imagine inflating it with water or air or something like that, you, some mm -hmm. of them are going to be thicker and some of them are going to be bigger, some are going to be smaller. And it goes in millimeter increments. So you have uh, one grade of gut that's 16 to 18 millimeters, 18 to 20, 20, 22, 22, 24. That 18 to 20 used to be a gut size of gut that was not used very much because the main use for the intestine is the manufacture of uh, sausage. The, when it comes to that material, our biggest competitor is the sausage making industry for that, mm -hmm. for that material. And uh, I don't know, 10 years ago, 12 years ago, or something like that, the Japanese uh, sausage makers developed a particular kind of hot, spicy sausage that, was, that they used that 18 to 20 millimeter range of gut for. Um, up to that point, that was a size of gut that was not used for a sausage. For some reason, people didn't use that particular diameter that much. Um, so that material was relatively inexpensive for us. But when the when the Chinese uh, when the Japanese developed the taste for the sausage, they began buying up all of that gauge, which caused the price of that material to rise just hundreds of percent in a in a very short time. So we had to start using uh, beef gut as, a, as a, a less expensive material for our for our customers, <clears throat> and we still make cheap gut strings because they uh, have certain playing qualities that the beef gut strings don't have, and mm -hmm. uh, that our player or our uh, customers demand. Um, but the the beef gut is just less expensive, so it means that we can uh, afford to sell strings cheaper than the sheep gut strings would have to be just because of the cost of the material is just so great these days. The economics of the sheep gut has really changed drastically over the last 20 years. You mentioned the thickness of the, of the gut. Is thicker or thinner more preferred for the string making, or does, does, it, does that depend upon the string that you're eventually going to make from it? Well, it depends on the string and what what the string is going to be used. You know, E strings are a certain range of gauges. Uh, a strings are a certain range of gauges. You can go heavier or, or thinner depending on if you want a slightly more tension or less tension. Um, <clears throat> so the the string has to be gauged for the for its use, for the position on the instrument, what instrument it is, and what pitch is going to be tuned to. Mm -hmm. So you get the gut, and then is there a cleaning process to it, I would assume? Also, does the gut need to be aged, or can it be used uh, relatively immediately? And I think I read also that 
Um, there's a stabilization process. You mentioned the soda ash that <clears throat> is a part of the process and also whether there is any bleaching or coloring of the strings that takes place before they're ready to be, uh, to be, to be made into strings. Mm. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. <clears throat> yeah, the, uh, the, there, there's a, a, a really long cleaning process that the gut has to go through. It's, it's sort of, um, uh, it can best be described as a, a slightly, it's, a, I had to hate to use the word, but I have to use the word uh, putrefaction uh, process to sort of get the the uh, fat and oils and things out of the out of the gut because we want uh, we want the gut to be just as pure a collagen as we can get. So the that it's the collagen that bonds together to make the quality of the string to make it strong to make it durable. So we, it, it's this big long process of, of trying to get as much fat and oil out of the material as possible, uh, and it takes it takes about eight weeks to make a string. Uh, mm -hmm. From the time we get the gut out of the out of the barrel and get it into the water and start the process, it's about an eight week process to to actually make a string because we have to uh, purify it and 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 clarify it and then twist it and then it has to dry very slowly. So that collagen bonds together really well. And then uh, once it's dried, it still has to dry a little further and season. And uh, it's, so it's, it's, it's quite a long process and it's one that we have to keep doing. We, we never stop making strings because if we stopped making strings, you know, it would take uh, two months to start making strings again. So it's this ongoing daily year in year out process that we, uh, that we continue to do in the shop to, to be able to supply the strings that people need at any, you know, any time, because there's hundreds of different diameters of strings and twists of strings that we make. And uh, it's, it's a big job. It's a lot to it. Mm -hmm. Fascinating. Um, so uh, I guess now maybe I'll just ask you a little bit about, maybe this is the, uh, this is the, the controversial part of, of this topic. Um, controversial, I guess, to some, depending on, on what camp you are in. So um, at least from my perspective, uh, I was, you know, I was a kid in the 70s and, and a student in the 80s. And I, when I was, when I was young, most uh, serious classical string players, um, we pretty much all still used gut, although it was wound gut. Uh, metal wound. It wasn't um, typically wasn't raw, um, but uh, this was the time when the de the development of synthetic materials was really taking off. And by the time I was a by the time I graduated from college, um, I would estimate that probably three quarters of my fellow students and 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 my, then my colleagues, at least three quarters of us uh, had switched over to synthetics for some of the perceived advantages of stability um, in tuning and other aspects. But gut strings continue to be a an important part of our our performance world, in particular in in the world of period um, historical performance, which you've mentioned. So do you mind getting into a little bit about what are the differences between gut and synthetics and what you might see, a, see as the advantages of 
gut strings or the other way around, or maybe it's simply that these two different materials, there's just differences between them and it depends what you're drawn to. Do you have a, do you have a take on that? Um, oh yeah, that's a, that's a concept that I think about all the time. Um, uh, especially having done so much work in uh, early instruments, it's when I when I first started in the seventies, it was a kind of a constant justification of why are you doing this weird thing. Um, I, I used to back in the day when I started, there were maybe half a dozen of us that were making historical violins in the world at that time, and uh, there was a lot of of uh, a lot of judgment about that. Um, I would run into violin makers and, you know, we'd start to talk about what do you do, what do you do? And, and people would say, oh, I would never make a Baroque violin. That's a stupid thing. I would never do that. Why, why would you want to do that? We make real violins for real violinists to play. Um, so for a long time, I would, you know, there were just not many of us that were doing it. And uh, we had to continually justify that, yes, this is a viable uh, form of music and it's not just silly. Um, but that changed over the years, and uh, it's uh, the, the idea of a more diverse concept of what sound is, I think, is, is accepted in the classical world these days. Um, so what you get with the gut string is a more, it's just a richer, fuller tone. Um, because the, just the qualities of the string are such that uh, the, the gut just has a, a tone, it has a sound, it has a feel to the musician that gives them an ability to shade the tone in a way that you just can't achieve with other kinds of strings. Um, and a lot of that is just how the strings are made but a lot of it too is just the quality of the materials. One of the things that you find in the synthetic string world, um, there, there's a concept of internal damping, uh, for instance, uh, because synthetic materials tend to have a slightly higher speed of sound. Uh, you know, every every material has a speed of sound. Um, you hit something that it, it, it vibrates at a certain uh, uh, velocity and you get different sounds and different tones and different things depending on that. Um, and one of the concepts that the synthetic string makers have used is trying to introduce this internal damping because uh, the sound of the speed of sound in gut is much slower than it is in uh, steel or nylon. So you get a warmer tone because the speed of sound is slower. Uh, in synthetic strings they use uh, different flosses and they, they, they introduce materials that have a much lower speed of sound than uh, the, mater the material, the steel or the metal or the, the uh, synthetic material they're using to try and slow that down, to try and match the tone of, of gut a little bit more because the, the, the gold standard for the tone of a violin is based on the, the tone of a gut string. And so many of the synthetic strings that have been made in the uh, 20th century talk about how they sound as good as a gut string. They sound as good as a, as warm as a gut string. And of course, my argument is, well, if that's the sound you want, why don't you just play a gut string? Why fool around with all of these other things? Uh, it, 
just use a gut string. Um, but for numerous reasons, uh, people don't want to do that. Uh, but I think that the um, the advent of the synthetic string really influenced the sound of the violin and the, the the sound of music that we heard, especially over the middle part of the 20th century. Um, and it's uh, these days, it's a little bit more common to have a more diverse concept of what the tone would be. Um, in the 70s, I used to talk to players about playing gut strings, and they, they said they couldn't. Um, they played in an orchestra and they had to use uh, dominant strings. You know, the violin section used dominant strings and that's just, that's the tone that you had to have. And you couldn't just show up with some weird string on your, on your violin because it wouldn't blend the way the orchestra director wanted. For instance, uh, the bass players usually, it was all right for them to use gut strings because you know, they were basses and they were kind of, you know, just, just needed to make low notes anyway. Um, but there was there was real concepts of what was allowed and what wasn't allowed in the way of, of a tone, and a lot of it had to do with what kind of string you were using. Um, these days, it's a lot different. You know, I, I have customers that work in orchestras, that, and they play gut strings, and the other players don't. There seems to be a little bit more latitude on that these days. Mm -hmm. um, but, uh, yeah, it, it, it has been difficult to try and reintroduce the idea of gut strings to the modern musician, the, the sort of mainstream classical musician. It's been uh, it's been very difficult to reintroduce that idea. Yeah, you know, you mentioned you mentioned something. Um, you mentioned that there was this idea, at least for for a while, that when you made a synthetic string, as you said, the gold standard was you wanted to sound like a gut string. I wonder if there's any if you have any idea that in a sense, maybe synthetic strings have simply started to depart and, and become their own standard. In other words, I don't know if you would agree with this analogy, but I would imagine that when golf clubs, which were all made of wood, um, when somebody started introducing metal and or other materials for those, for those golf clubs at first, looking for the strength and flexibility matching up to wood might've been a starting point but eventually they departed graphite and other materials now used for golf clubs. They're simply working on their own set of, um, re, uh, of sought after uh, characteristics in terms of the flexibility of the shaft, the, um, the strength or the, the, the amount of tension, um, what it allows you to do. And so they probably don't relate in any sense to what the characteristics of the wood golf club would have been. Of course, music is an art form. It's not a sport. We don't just measure ourselves by how fast we can play on a string. But similarly, I wonder if the, there's been a divergence now to the point where if you're looking for certain tonal characteristics that are best delivered with synthetic, you're not even really trying to capture a gut sound versus the person who prefers the the uh, warmth, as you put it, or other characteristics of gut. So do you think there's any, any validity to that, that line of reasoning? Oh, absolutely, yeah. Um, you know, so much of the tone of what people expect with the violin these days is based on the sound of the domestic dominant string. You know, those strings have been so um, dominant, if you want to use that <laughs> word, in the market. Okay. 
for so many years that that's kind of what the modern violin is supposed to sound like. It's supposed to sound like a, a, an acoustical box with dominant strings on it. Um, so that has developed its, I mean, that's its own tonal concept in itself. And uh, it, it, it's a valid tone, you know, there's certainly nothing wrong with it. Um, I just, my own taste is that I like a, a warmer, richer sound and a richher tone. So I'm, uh, I'm, I'm all in, into the gut thing. Um, but the, the, oh, the, one, the other difference I think you get with gut that you don't get with synthetic is how it interacts with the room. Um, I've noticed a lot in discussing a tone with, with violinists, um, a lot of violinists get stuck in the idea of how the instrument sounds under their ear. And they think that that's how the instrument sounds. And it's not. You know, how the instrument sounds under your ear, how it sounds at the end of the stage, how it sounds in the middle of the hall. You know, there's, there's a lot of different sounds that, that generate. Um, and the, I like to think about the tone of the violin being something that propagates in a room. It interacts with the room, the air in the room, the size of the room, the people in the room. It just, it's this, you know, it, uh, a musical performance is this living thing that involves all of these parts and all of these things that have to sort of come together to uh, create the experience. And the one thing I've noticed is that the synthetic strings uh, tend to sound loud under the ear, and that's a sound that musicians like. They like to feel like they're making a lot of noise and that they're caring. And I, now I've, I've tried to explain to musicians a, a lot um, over, the, over the last decades that, that the sound under your ear, is, that's not what matters. That what matters is the sound out in the hall in the room. And in my experience, gut strings, because they have uh, just a different uh, acoustical makeup, the, the, the tone, if you look at the, the a spectrograph of a gut string, it has a very strong fundamental frequency. And the fundamental frequency is that thing that gets the energy out into the room. Um, that's why when you, uh, if you're walking across a, a, a field at night toward a, a, a band that's playing, and you're walking toward this band, the first thing you're going to hear is the bass because those are the lowest notes, those are the ones that carry the most. Um, and I, I like that illustration to develop the concept of the, the music physically vibrating, going out into the room, and it's that strong fundamental that drives that energy from a gut string that goes out into the room. So the, the sound that you get from a gut string is much different under your ear than it is out in the room. And I always try and get people to say that go out in the room, listen to it out there. Don't, don't listen to it under your ears so much. You know, it's, it's out there is where the experience of hearing the tone is going to happen. Um, and that's another one of the good things about God is that it, it just, it, I feel like it interacts in the room and in a space much better than a synthetic string does. One of the things that I'm, I'm going to do at the end of this uh, conversation in conclusion is I'm going to um, spend some time setting up an instrument with uh, gut strings and recording, including recording sort of from the back of a room and okay. then giving some time for the instrument uh, to be 
restrung with different strings and to see if we can capture um, with the microphones a little bit of these different tonal characteristics. I think it'll be really fascinating for people to hear that. I can relate um, to you that, um, as I mentioned earlier, for much of my professional life, I was uh, predominantly using synthetic strings. Um, I became more and more interested in um, going back to the use of gut strings as I became more and more interested in period performance. And this kind of culminated last year in a project that I did where I, I recorded some of the works of Bach on a modern violin with modern strings and then on a Baroque violin uh, with gut strings. And it's, it was really a, it was really an, an, a, a really fascinating journey because I discovered among other things, the way you play a gut string and, and you alluded to this, the way you play a gut string is a little bit subtly different from how you play a synthetic or metal string. This is bound up also in the fact that the instruments themselves, the period instruments are different from the modern instruments. So the, it's, a, it's a whole package, but it really does change you uh, as a musician to work with um, these materials. It, it, it has an, a very um, profound, perhaps, in influence on how you're, how you're making your music. Well, Dan, thank you so much. Is there anything else you'd like to add to, uh, to, the, to the end of this conversation about, about gut strings and um, their, their, their sound and construction? Um, hmm. yeah, we covered it pretty well. The, the, the other thing that I would mention um, as well is it's, uh, humans just sort of have an affinity with gut strings. Um, it, because it's, it's collagen, it's the same thing that our skin is made out of. So your, your finger gets very comfortable on a gut string because it just, and, and a gut string warms up as you play it. It actually does get, you know, you literally warm up the instrument because the strings get warm with the energy of the, the vibration and, and then your handling of it. And it, it just gives a relationship to the instrument. It gives us sort of a, a way into the instrument because we have that affinity with the material. It gives us a way into understanding the tone of the instrument that I just don't think you quite get with the synthetic string. Um, and it's that, uh, it's that affinity, it's that sort of indefinable relationship that you can have with something that is similar to you that I think makes the string work so well musically for, uh, as, as a material. So, uh, yeah, I, I would encourage your listeners that if you've never tried a gut string, try it, see how it works. And, uh, you might find some, some sounds and some tones that, uh, you didn't expect to. That, that was, that was lovely. It's, that was almost a little bit mystical the way you the way you describe that, there is certainly something fascinating and absolutely um, different about the gut strings. Dan, thank you again so much for your time this morning. It's been a pleasure speaking with you and uh, I look forward to, to speaking in the future and crossing paths as they say. Thank you very much. I appreciate uh, uh, being invited and it's certainly been a, a fun conversation. I enjoyed it very much, thanks.